Hey, welcome to the Night Church Podcast, where we meet every Friday evening for worship at the Loma Linda University Church for young adults by young adults. We hope this encourages you and someone else you know. Enjoy. that you are a, a, such an all-embracing kind of church. It's amazing that you would even invite a Canadian down here to speak to you. So, uh, oh, you like Canadians. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll report that back across the border <laughs> to see, see what it does. So, uh, we're, Marilyn and I are just thankful that for this invitation... To come in February. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we only had to pray about it for a little while. Yeah. So, uh, but they didn't give me the topic to, to talk about the love passages of Scripture. I, they gave me the war text. And, uh, and yet I hope you by the end of it, see them quite differently. Well, uh, the war texts are just a little bit troubling because some of them read, you know, in, in Joshua, Judges, Deuteronomy, Samuel, Kings, they talk about killing all of the Canaanites. Men, women, children, young, old, and you go, and, and then the reports come back, yes, we killed all of these, everyone. No persons left standing. None remain breathing. And, and they trouble. Those texts trouble me. And that trouble has been growing immensely ever since 9-11 because I think in terms of religious studies and biblical studies, uh, it, it pushed the question of holy war and, and violence and religion and the relationship between violence and religion to a new kind of breaking point. And so these texts have become significantly troubling, but they are fodder and deeply loved by another group of atheists. We'll get to them in a minute. The, the troubling, the, the, the traditional answer that Christians have had is this. Yes, the total kill texts in Scripture literally happen. But God is still good, just and holy. He's still that kind of good God. Uh, and if God is just and holy and good, then whatever he says or commands must be just and holy or good. It sounds logical. And the Canaanites were evil. So we simply can't really resolve the ethical problems. Now, what we've just served up is a, is a tray of wonderful stuff to a group called New Atheists. 
Okay, now new atheism has come along, and let me just, for those who might not be familiar with that term, atheists uh, used to, you know, gather in colloquiums and, and uh, match off against theists and have debates, and, and you would debate, uh, you know, one, one would debate the teleological argument for the existence of God, and the other would come and counter that with, uh, you know, philosophical arguments, and uh, there would be a nice exchange, intellectual exchange. But now new, the new atheism has come along, and, and they have read our scriptures. Dang. You know, if only they'd left them alone. But they come to us and they say this, you Christians, your God wanted to literally kill every breathing Canaanite, men, women, children, babies. Babies? Oh. So you Christians worship a bloodthirsty, genocidal God. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? <laughs> yeah. Well, 9-11 kind of pushed that question pretty hard. And uh, some of us, a bunch of us Canadian uh, professors, we got together one summer and we started, you know, reading the, gen the genocidal texts and, and reading some, starting to read some material. Uh, and we started to wrestle with these questions. And we wondered, were there better answers than the, the traditional answers. You know, could, are, you know is, are we missing something here? And so we started exploring that. And I want to take you through uh, some of the better answers that I think we've landed on, okay? Are there better answers? I, I think so. I think so. And in fact, it uh, took me 14 years to work on this, in this book here. A couple of dubious authors, William J. Webb, don't know who that is, and Gordon Osteen. <laughs> 14 years. And one year extra edit thing with three editors. And my, uh, my bride, my beloved, is here tonight. And Amen, yes, yes, uh, and uh, I, 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 I recall a conversation we had in about year 15 of this. She looked at me and said, Bill, this book has taken you forever to write. I did, can I hear an amen? Oh, <laughs> forever, I, I looked at Marilyn and I said, forever, no, no, it's, only taken 14 years. Okay, if you look up forever, you know, it, it, it starts somewhere, I think, but it keeps on going, you know, into a thousand years, a millennial, you know, a million years, a bazillion years. This only took 14 years. Uh, and, and, uh, but then I, I said to her, 
I think you're speaking hyperbolically. She read portions of the manuscript, and, and so she, we kind of just had a little twinkle exchange in her eyes. Uh, but um, I have grown in my understanding of hyperbolic language, and I've, I've come to realize that when we say something hyperbolically, we mean X plus. Uh, and the plus is usually emotive. You know, we're, we're trying to say something emotively, you know? And, and I did a dangerous thing. Guys, if you're in a significant other relationship, I tread lightly on doing this, but I, I said to Marilyn, how do you feel about that word forever? What, what are you trying to say to me? <laughs> this is taking you forever to write. Okay, I have a, a mental image that she really wants me to write this romance novel that, you know, <laughs> that can sell $2 million, $2 million worth, you know, and, and I can write it in a weekend or something. You know? Well, ain't gonna happen. But let me just ask you with a hyperbole. Uh, how, how many of you have ever said that uh, blank is to die for? Okay. You're talking to your friend and you go, blanks, fill in the blank, is to die for. Okay, uh, some of you, okay, some of you are honest. The rest of you are, are just don't, don't want to raise your, okay, now I can see. Don't want to raise your hands. Okay, a few of you, uh, uh, how do you fill in the blank? Just shout it out. Ice cream is to die for. <laughs> what else is to die for? What else? Chocolate. Oh, that's chocolate. That dark chocolate. That sees, what's that? Cheesecake. Ooh. Is that the winner tonight? Cheesecake is to die for. Yes. There's a certain factory around here, I know, that we don't have in Canada. Okay. Uh. Anything else to die for? All right. Oh, poutine, yes, yes. <laughs> the food of Canada, poutine, yes. <laughs> it's to die for. Okay, I, you know, we use hyperbole in all kinds of contexts. And uh, we're going to talk about that. But I get to talk about something fun before I have to crawl into war. Okay, and I, I want to just, because I want to root ourselves in a, in a in an understanding God portrait uh, that connects with the war passages very much so. Uh, but, um, but it gets us solid. And I wanna, I wanna talk about the God of the mountain. And when we're talking about the God of the mountain, we're into the book of Exodus. And, and the Egyptians have, uh, uh, were, were unable to keep the, the slaves uh, of, of Egypt and uh, Israel broke loose and headed for the land of Canaan. They're out in the desert, and they're, they're worshiping at the base of Mount Sinai. And they look up, and, and God has come down, uh, and there is this, uh, this, we call it negative epiphany, with this, uh, this black smoke and the lightning and fire, and uh, it scares the people to death. They're, they're frightful. 
and they say, hmm, we don't want to go and approach any closer. Let's send the elders up, okay? If they get burnt to the crisp, we can always vote in new elders. <laughs> and so they send up uh, Aaron and uh, Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. They go up the mountain and they go right through. And what they see there is amazing. They go up through the negative epiphany and the core of Yahweh, the core of God, is this beautiful, tranquil lake. It is hypnotically inviting. It, it, it is peaceful and serene. It is like on our honeymoon, Marilyn and I went to, to Lake Louise in Banff. Oh, oh, we were students. So we sat on the portico of Chateau Lake Louise and ordered hot water and brought our tea bags to put in. <laughs> Something like that. It was beautiful. And later we hiked to Lake Moline. Gorgeous Lake Moline. And, and, and of course, it's kind of like Lake Tahoe here, Northern Cal. Beautiful, serene lake. And we had... We had a photographer take a picture uh, of one of those lakes that we love. And we took that picture and we put it on the wall in our house because we wanted our relationship to be like that. We, we were newlyweds, okay? You have to understand. And I can say quite truthfully, that our house has not always, in terms of what's going on, reflected the picture on the wall. But it is our hope, and it is our desire. And that is the picture of the core of God, which is an interesting discord with war. And in front of that peaceful, beautiful, serene lake, they eat and drink wine and kind of like a keg steak dinner from Shalomim. Again, that is, uh, you eat and drink with friends. It is, it is a, a double layer, a symphony of peace. And at in the mountain, at the base of the mountain, God builds his house. Now, which room does God live in in his house? Anyone know that? The Holy of Holies. Wrong. <laughs> he doesn't live there. But I'll tell you what part of God lives there. Okay, you have the, the Holy of Holies, the Kadosh Kadosh room, and just outside of the Kadosh Kadosh room is the singular Kadosh room. There are layers of holiness, and outside of the singular layer of uh, Kadosh Kadosh room is the, are the sacred courts, and outside of the sacred courts, outside of the temple, where, where, uh, where the Goyim can worship, come to worship the Gentiles, and, and outside of that are the, the encampments, and outside of that, 
is where those who have certain uh, illnesses, leprosy and so on, uh, live. And, and then off in the far distance is the desert, the haunt and abode of demons, and where, where once a year during Yom Kippur, uh, the sins of the people are placed on the Azazel, and the Azazel is sent out to the desert. All of those layers of holiness, Kadosh. God doesn't live in the Kadosh, Kadosh room, though many think that. What's in the Kadosh, Kadosh room is another box, a box within the box. And the second box is known as the Ark of the Covenant. Raiders of the Lost Box. And that box, we know from all kinds of scripture, is the Ark of the Covenant. The alternative word for the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God. God isn't in the room. God is enthroned in the heavens, in the cosmos. And eh, I better hold on to something here. This, uh, God is enthroned in the cosmos. And it... it it is all he does. He needs all these layers of holiness just so his toes can touch the footstool of our world. That is the cosmically holy God. Amazing. And in his house where God's feet are touching our world that is so other than the holy God, there are certain rituals. Okay, there's certain sacrifices. And uh, there are five. Uh, and tonight we're going to learn them. Okay? All right? Uh, because I hear you're a very uh, brilliant group of people down here in Loma Linda. Loma Linda. Uh, amen. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Pastor Philip. That's, that's good. Uh, get one amen, and if it's from the pastor, you know. Uh, it wasn't a real amen. It was just an amen. Yeah, okay, up in Canada, we know about Loma Linda. We know that you all live to 150, when we live to about, you know, 40, 50, you know. So we're, we're you know, a little, and we understand that not only great age, but brilliance as well. Well, we, we know that kind of from the, uh, the medical community and uh, the, the health sciences group here. But, okay, so we're going to learn, and you got to stand up for this, okay? All right, literally. Okay, you got to stand up for learning the sacrifices. You got to get your hands going here, all right? Because um, they're five, okay? So get one hand going with the five, one hand going with the five, all right? So we're going to do the, the thumb first. And we're going we're gonna to start clicking. That's very hard for guys because we can't do two things at once. I can't think and spit, you know. But, okay, we're going to click. The first one is called reparation. 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 You have to do whatever you can do to undo what you've done. Undo some wrong you've done. Okay, the first thing you do in drawing near to the Holy God is, is to make amends. Okay. Ashan, reparation. You said it again. Reparation. 
Tata is uh, purification. Reparation, purification. Reparation, purification. Burnt grain. Burnt grain. Now we're at four. Reparation, purification, burnt grain. Oh, man, they aren't. Whoa. Reparation, purification, burnt grain, peace. Shalamim. Okay. Let's see if we can do it all together. Get the clicking going. Reparation, purification, burnt grain, peace. Reparation, purification, burnt grain, peace. If I were a rich man. <laughs> do, 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 do. Oh, uh, that's in another book. Or, no, a play, I think, Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, thank you very much. You did a great clap for yourself. You did a great job. Yes. Now, if you know the Hebrew as well, Asham Hatta Olaminka Shalamim. Shalamim. Shalom. What's at the core of God? The pristine, peaceful, tranquil lake where you eat and drink a shalom meal with the shalom God. And, and the whole ritual is that in drawing near to the footstool, you move away from that as displeasing to God. You make amends with your other fellow people and, and you move towards him with dedicatory stuff. And, and then you eat and drink in a meal and that's the heart of his house. Those three elements are, have a striking discord with war. And it's very important to, to catch that. Okay, now we'll jump into the uglies. Okay, but we're going to come back to that. This wasn't just a you know, vacation pause we did. All right, this is my forever book. It took me forever to write. <laughs> Are there better answers than the traditional ones? And I, I'm just going to say the traditional ones do work, but they work for some questions, other questions in the biblical text that the original authors had. I don't have time to get into that tonight. Well, hyperbole. Oh, you might have guessed that. There was anticipation, hopefully, and some of you do talk a little bit in hyperbole. Um, let me just back up on this one. Uh, no, I didn't get any movement in this screen. Everything came out at once. Okay, that's fine. Two things to remember with hyperbole. I want you to think about sand and about walls. Okay? Sand and walls. <coughs> if you've ever started counting the sand at the seashore... Start with a thimble, okay? Count how many are in a thimble or a square inch. Then if you really get wild about it, take a pail, and, you know, if you're out there with the kids or whomever, and grab, some, grab a pail of sand and sit it down and take all afternoon to see how far you can count. One, two, three. 
three, four. Why would God, why would Dr. Webb ask us to do this? Well, okay, I think when we come to the book of Joshua, and it says in the book of Joshua, as they're looking out at this coalition army that are coming against Israel, and they say, they're like the sand of the seizure. They are so numerous. I think it's hyperbole. Okay. <laughs> Probably not the sand of the seashore. Or walls. When they send the, the 12 spies in to look at the land and, and to uh, and say whether we should go in or not, uh, they come back and say, no, the 11 of the 12 say, no, we shouldn't go in because the cities there have walls that are walled up to the heavens. And we... We, the people of Israel, are just like little grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. I'm so glad that you've been listening to the first part of the sermon. This sort of production does require some financial cost. If you'd like to reach more young adults with this across the world, would you consider giving at praxisministry.org? You can select the Praxis Young Adult Envelope. Enjoy the rest of the sermon. Now, I think I've looked at many of the walls, uh, and I don't find any that are walled up to the heavens. <laughs> it's hyperbole, and it's war hyperbole. And something has changed in biblical studies over the last 50 years. We've, we've had a deluge of, uh, of texts, of ancient Near Eastern texts to work with. And, and one of the reasons, and I put them all up here, I'm just going to talk through a few of them, sample reasons. One of the reasons uh, that the total kill language is not literal. It's actually hyperbole. Hmm. It's one of the better answers. And it's not just because I feel better about it. It's because we've learned about the genre of war talk in the ancient Eastern world. And they're all talking hyperbole. Okay. And we didn't know that as much, and, and now we do a lot. Okay, they, they talk, uh, and, and it's because there's a whole emotive punch. Uh, part of it is smack talk, part of it is with, with Israel especially, it is the concern, the emotive concern out over idolatry. Not killing, per se, but over idolatry if, you know, if... Uh, if you don't do something, especially with, with the idols, etc. Joshua and Judges, when you get in there, I'll give you some evidence for hyperbole. Joshua and Judges, when you start reading it, start reading along in Joshua and you skim the surface, do a, do a quick half-hour read, zoom, and you'll see lots of stuff that are, they killed all, some of the summary statements. Everybody went down. And you think at the end of Joshua, Joshua had done everything in terms of total kill. The only thing is you come into Judges and boom, the Canaanites are still there. And they're deeply rooted all over the place. And you think, what's going on? You know, we have two different stories here. And then you go back into Joshua and start reading certain pieces. And right next to it, everybody went down. No, everybody didn't go down. And you start saying, oh, 
it's total kill language. That's hyperbole. And what we, what we have discovered is probably it was just like in normal ancient Near Eastern uh, warfare where you, you kill the king, you kill uh, some of the leaders and uh, the opposing army to the degree that it remains a threat. Run away, good. But you don't kill populations, especially when they're, they're worth something. <laughs> you can enslave them or you can... Uh, do a variety of things with them. 12 to 20 other references to other nations in the prophets, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, etc. They all get mentioned with this total kill language as well. Uh, Yahweh through the prophet says, I'm going to wipe you all out, boom, boom, boom. It's all total kill language, but we know a whole lot more now about what the actual transition was, and, and we know it wasn't, it wasn't total kill. It was, it's this hyperbolic language, once again. And uh, in addition, in those war transitions, they often used cosmic catastrophe language, like the stars are going to fall, and the moon is turning blood red, and uh, all of the stars are falling to the earth like, like figs falling to the ground. You know? Well, if the earth scientifically gets struck by a meteor, we're pretty much done for. Uh, let alone a star, <laughs> just a little speck, let alone a star falling to earth, let alone all the stars falling to earth. Okay, it's hyperbolic language that... Uh, talk in a war context about the transition between nations. The flow went uh, from uh, Assyria to Babylon to Persia. It's the ABPs of intertestamental history. And we know when uh, Babylon took over Assyria and this cosmic catastrophe language is stated in, in Scripture, we know that that didn't happen. It was a rhetoric or a way of describing the world as we know it will never be the same. Okay? Just as we don't really want to die if we eat this chocolate. It's a way of saying, ah, it's good chocolate. You know? uh, and, and that's how hyperbole works. Uh, we could go through a bunch more of these, but um, the drive-out language of Scripture, for example, that's much more along the lines of what they really wanted. They wanted, they wanted sacred space. A and you can, you can read the Bible backwards. It's often very helpful to read it backwards through Chronicles. Chronicles is written after First and Second Kings. In the book of Chronicles, they're, they're sitting in exile or even post-exile, and they're wondering, and, and their theological reflection is, how in the world did we get here? And the answer is, oh yeah, we, we became the Canaanites. And poof, God kicked us out of sacred space, like God used us to kick out <laughs> you know, the Canaanites. Same word in the garden as well. The first Canaanites were Adam and Eve. They were garroshed. Holy war term, booted out of the garden. You can imagine, I don't know if that was edited later by, by the exilic people or not, but there was sacred space, 
God drove them out of the garden and then put an angel with a flaming sword. All right. Fascinating threefold uh, literal Canaanites, but there are two, two elements of literary Canaanites as well. And when we read, when we read the section in Scripture about Israel itself being booted out of the land, guess what? We have total kill language. We have all that same language that we found out earlier that, that is so disturbing when it's about the, is, about, uh, you know, the, uh, the Canaanites in the land. We have total kill language about wiping out Israel. Okay? And it, they got hit twice in terms of war. Uh, the earlier time uh, with the Assyrians come in and the later time with the Babylonians. And both occasions, this total, total kill language is utilized in the prophets, and it didn't happen, we know. Well, one thing, they came back you know, afterwards, and some were left in the land uh, in order to keep the land uh, manageable and going and in order to send tribute on to uh, the great suzerain of the land. So when we're looking at it, that's, that's very important to square off and say, no, there wasn't genocide at all. It is hyperbolic war language. Now, there may be problems with the rhetoric, okay, I grant you, but that's a lot less problematic, and we can talk about Wittgenstein and, and language and theology, but that's a whole other lecture. Yeah. All right, so uh, the goal then, if you can even read it down here at the bottom, the goal is to rid the land of idols, not necessarily kill people. Because if you think about the Ten Commandments, what's the core of the Ten Commandments? It's wrapped up in the Shema. Love the Lord your God along with all the other gods around. Oh, it doesn't go like that? Okay, I need some help here. Love the Lord your God with all your and all your soul, and all your strength. The Lord your God is one. He is your one and only Dharma, the exclusive Yahweh God. A and in order to have sacred space in Eden, they needed to worship God and got booted out of sacred space. In order to, and, and the sacred space idea develops into a piece of land, uh, and ultimately with the new 12 and 7, the old 12 tribes and the 70 elders, the new 12 and 70 under Jesus, the sacred land spreads to the whole earth. Okay, now it's still bumpy in the ethical <laughs> topography in terms of trusting Jesus and that kind of thing, but th that's the ultimate movement towards the redemptive and final stage of the Kadosh Kadosh room, the cosmic cube, sugar cube in the, in the book of Revelation that comes down to the earth. The lower cube has a cosmic cube up, and it comes down to earth and morphs us into a new world. Okay, that's a little bit of a, an engagement in terms of answer number one is no. 
It's not literal. And the, the minute we start giving into literalism, we feed new atheism great stuff. Well, answer number two is accommodation. And when you think of accommodation, I, I want you to think of God crawling down into sewer water, ethical sewer water. Uh, and so it's important to have those arrows there. The sewer water is not God. It is a gentleman crawling down <laughs> into this ethical sewer water. Okay, and, and you can't see it, but here's a nose clip uh, because it stinks. Okay. Part of what happens in Scripture is in order for God to work with humanity that is engaged in ethical sewer water and work with this people Israel, he has to come down. God come down is, is a smelly business. And another way of putting it illustratively is when accommodation, when God accommodates to our world, it is like parents. I won't ask how many of you are parents, but if you're parents and over 30, then you, you start coming down to play with your kids down like this, and is there, your knees don't quite work, you know, quite as well as, amen, as uh, younger parents. And uh, it causes God pain. Accommodation causes God pain. He comes down into our smelly world in order to, we're drowning in the sewer water, in order to lift us up a little, a little out of the stinky. If he lifted us totally out and washed us, it would be new heavens and new earth. But he hasn't left us, he hasn't taken us there yet. We're still waiting and asking how long, but, and uh, this happens, accommodation ethics happens a lot in scripture. And just because God says it, it can be God coming down and working with us in this world. So the jump from God said it, that therefore it must be ultimate ethic, ain't so. Now, one of the, one of the pictures here, and what, what we're trying to say with accommodation is Yahweh is a highly reluctant war God. He doesn't like war. Uh, in fact, uh, he accommodates to Israel for, for even having a king. And the, the point in the text was, I don't really want you to have a king because a king sets up a whole variety of dominoes that eventually pushes you into a mega war machine. And that's not the people I want. But they go ahead and do that, okay? So they go ahead and accommodate God. Uh, God accommodates to them. Uh, and, and one example that I want to take you to, it's a good thing to talk about a little bit about God's temple, is the picture in Chronicles. And Chronicles, again, is asking that, you know, how did we get here? And Chronicle re rewrites the story of David. When I went to Sunday school or Sabbath church, I never learned this about David. All I learned about David was he was the glorious person of the Old Testament who did no wrong except for that Bathsheba thing. And that was just kind of off character. 
And uh, nobody wants to say anything bad about David, but God does. Yahweh God does. In Chronicles, in later reflection, as the people are thinking, how in the world did we get here? Well, we got here be by becoming the Canaanites. We got here by, by becoming the war machine that God didn't want us to become, etc. And And what they do in, in First Chronicles is Yahweh says, David is not going to build my temple. Now, New Atheism may say that Yahweh God is a bloodthirsty, genocidal God. I would say, no, you're not reading the biblical text well. But I will admit that Yahweh is a strange God. I'm almost crazy. But in, in an inviting way. And for, in an ancient nearest world, for a god to reject a warrior king building him a temple, eh, eh, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. There were three steps between a warrior king and the god. And, and, and step number one is battle. Step number two is build. Battle, build, boast. Step number one with battle, uh, of course, you would have with these warrior kings who would take over lands, get lots of uh, wealth, and, uh, and then build their ancient Eastern god a temple. Or if that god already had a temple, they would refurbish it. Battle, build, and boast. How would they boast in the ancient world about war? Well, they would hire their best artisans. Imagine hiring your best artisans in this community. And what are they going to do? They're going to take that temple and sketch it and etch it into stone and, and engravings of metal, etc., full of war iconography on the inside, on the out. We talked earlier about what's at the core of God's house. He didn't want David, the great warrior king, building his house. No, because you have fought many battles and are, your hands are bloodstained. You have shed much blood in war, David. Wow. Instead... I want the shalom boy. And there's a play in the text off of shalom, shaloman. I want shaloman to build my temple because I am the, I, I don't want my reputation of shalom to have anywhere near, and I don't want the iconography of my temple to have war and the iconography of the temple inside are things like pomegranates, and beautiful lilies, large, huge lilies, and palm trees. You would almost think you'd left Canada and driven down here. Palm trees and date trees and, and life-sustaining things, not taking life. This, this Yahweh God, okay, 
don't tell me, new atheism, this God is a genocidal, bloodthirsty God. This God is not. But I will grant you, he's a little crazy. Because no other ancient or eastern God does that. That is just strange and weird in that context. Well, um, okay, uh, my slides are all coming up at once, so I'm fighting this a little bit. They, they're supposed to be sequenced. I don't know what happened, but I'm just rolling with it. Uh, so you can't really even see what's, <laughs> what's up there in terms of that. The next good answer that isn't so well displayed um, is the answer of um, basically incremental movement. Can, can we say that together? Incremental movement. Ah, I love that word, incremental. Incrementally redemptive movement. There is a, is a movement in the ethic of Scripture that is incrementally redemptive. And uh, I, I find that most people can get it very easily with thinking about a football field so that Israel is on the 20-yard line and it's headed for the ultimate ethic, but, you know, it, it is pushing against the sewer water. Okay, the <laughs> team's not called the sewer water, but it's pushing against the culture and the, issue and the war culture, and God is trying to move it, trying to move it downfield, and sometimes does in, in the Old, Old Testament and sometimes pushes it further in the New Testament. But these are incrementally redemptive moves. And you say, how so? Well, in the war text, let me give you just one example. I'm going to pack these a lot further in uh, Saturday, uh, Sabbath afternoon deal, uh, should you want to jump in there. But uh, let's just look at an ancient Near Eastern world. Okay, what, what do you see here? This is not, if you can see it this far, past the drum set and everything, uh, this, is, uh, the, this is a Syrian warfare, and uh, um, why would they have somebody staked to the ground and a bar between their back feet? Well, they would typically, typically, <laughs> that's good, never done this before, typically, they would uh, stake somebody to ground if they were still alive. Okay? And, and if you look at down at the next row, they're pulling the head with a set of gripping tongs. And the next row, they're pulling and ripping out a tongue. Because they don't want the person yelling at them or screaming at them while they are skinning them alive. Okay, a whole chapter on ancient world war atrocities. Skinning them alive, and they would take that skin and make it into furniture and place the furniture in some of the vestibules of the royal palaces and temples. They loved war. And their gods loved war and rewarded them. I'm going to get into this a lot more in, in, in the other se section. Um, 
I'll, I'll walk you through some of these temples. But Israel, what was Israel to do with the greatest enemy, the king? No torture. By the way, why do you think Saul fell on his sword? <laughs> if you're a king, you don't stay alive. You die in war, and that's mercy. But Israel didn't do that. Israel killed over 30 Canaanite kings, but they killed them, number one, with the sword. Number two, then they took the dead body, dead body, and displayed it kind of high enough so people could see it. And it was like, um, you better, the reverse of a white flag, you better surrender, <laughs> you know, because your king is dead. And that would often... Uh, you know, have armies depart because they thought, oh, we've lost our king. And then the third thing that they had to do was to bury the king by sunset. Much of this other torture that went on in warfare um, was to prolong their life. And uh, before they would do that torture, sometimes they would take them and force them to find the bones of their ancestors, which was psychologically just such trauma. To take them and find the bones of their ancestors in the, in the top iconography, and <clears throat> with those bones, uh, with a, one person going smash them and another knife at the neck, you grind, they're being forced to grind up the bones of their and you remember, if you're reading through Genesis even, it's very, very important they take the bones of the ancestors with you, and it's a whole cultural thing. Uh, but warfare iconography did psychologically damaging stuff. It was terrible. And Israel was not permitted to do that. Not even with the leader. Now, Tell me what kind of God is going on here. Yeah? I, I'm going to take you to a bunch of stuff like this. this is, by the way, this war chapter, Marilyn knows. Uh, I, I had to stop writing it for a while. I had to stop researching it. Because I literally started waking up it with, with nightmares. <laughs> okay. It is. So... Uh, if you have to stop reading sometime on, on the, uh, the chapter on ancient war atrocities, I will understand or skip it altogether. But it is one way, it is, it is a good way to contextually read scripture. Because that's the context. <laughs> there was no Hague and Geneva Convention. All <laughs> right. <laughs> What's that? You know? Uh, well, um, Okay, answer four. By the way, I, I've got to give you a little bit of a preview for some of them I want to develop later. Some of these portraits of, of incrementally redemptive or the subversive war text. Did you know in scripture that Yahweh commands his kings and armies that they are not to go, go and buy weapons of mass destruction? They're not allowed. And in fact, if they capture any weapons of mass destruction during a fight, 
They must destroy them. And then I'll get into what exactly was a mass uh, weapon of mass destruction in that culture and what changed the, f the whole scope of warfare into becoming a very bloody thing because of these weapons of mass destruction. And all of a sudden, Yahweh says, no, Israel, you're not allowed to have them. And also, if you get them in warfare, you destroy them. What kind of God is that? They're strange God, a profoundly strange God. But I kind of like that. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to get into a bunch of portraits later. Anyway, uh, answer number four that is a better answer than the traditional one is, is okay, how are you going to put together the, these three parts of Scripture? Okay, part A is the Old Testament Yahweh God. Uh, part B is Jesus in the Gospels and the Spirit in Acts and Epistles. And then there's part C with Jesus as apocalyptic warrior in the book of Revelation. <laughs> By the way, I've, I've taught Revelation for 30 years now, so I, I, I've been working there too. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just talk about the middle section. Jesus. Jesus in the Gospels. Okay. Uh, it's somewhat better if you're a Christian not to read the Old Testament. But, but, or at least think through how Yahweh and the Yahweh portrait really does converge with people. But Jesus in the New Testament says, you heard it said of old and cites Old Testament texts. But I say to you, okay, you've said it, heard it said, oh, an eye for an eye, but I say to you that that's going to leave the whole world blind. <laughs> you can do something better. I, I, you know, you've heard it said of old, you know, to hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and forgive them. And, and when Peter draws the sword, what does Jesus do? Yeah, let's, let's start a revolt. Put it away. As far as we can tell, Jesus was a, not a, a violent leader. And, and in fact, uh, when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he had been quite intrigued uh, about pursuing violence. And Jesus, you know, uh, helped them see life differently. The Spirit comes with the church, and the Spirit is theologically the new Jesus in our presence. Okay, the continuance of Jesus in our presence. And the new Jesus, the, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, if you want to think about that, uh, as opposed to the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, you go down that list, you know, gentleness, kindness, etc. Um, doesn't seem to be a violent sort of religion. So you have you have this peaceful core, and how do we relate it then? How do we relate it to Yahweh, to this Yahweh God? Well, I would say we're in trouble if we take the traditional answer. 
And that's messed us up big time over the years. It is our hope that in 20 years, the answers that we're giving which show the other side of Yahweh that he doesn't really like war. And he is a peaceful God and the core of who he is and that he accommodated to Israel. Okay, we're, And we're really reading Israel's sewer water into God. Don't do that. <laughs> it's not God. But the truth is, God comes to all of us, each one of us in this room. And he takes us and meets us where we are at. He loves us. Another one I'm going to develop on, su on Saturday afternoon. The Yahweh God is so weird because he cries. There are tears in heaven. Now, pastors have done a real lousy job there because they quote two texts from the book of Revelation that says, uh, you know, God will wipe away every tear. Right? If you're at, the, at a funeral, you often hear that um, both by pastors and uh, now pastors have done a really job. Okay, professors teaching pastors have done a really lousy job too because both those texts in the book of Revelation are of the new heavens and new earth. That is when God will dry every tear. But right now, right now, God cries in heaven. He is broken by the brokenness of our world. And there are umpteen texts that talk about God crying for this, that, and the other thing. I have a whole sermon on uh, tears in heaven. Frankly, uh, was one of the one of the best theological journeys in my life. As Marilyn and I saw our oldest son from age thirteen to twenty six when he passed, slowly degenerate uh, with a degenerative brain disease, and it broke me. I never cried. Marilyn never saw. And then I'd be driving along, and boom, I'd have to drive, pull over the side of the road. It just absolutely messed me up. And I started studying this Yahweh God who cries in heaven, who suffers in pain because of the pain of his people. Jürgen Moltmann, theologian, the crucified God, uh, talks of that. And with the war texts, it is fundamentally crazy that a war god would uh, not only cry for his people in their pain, but he cries over the defeat of enemies, of Israel's enemies. No other ancient Near Eastern god would ever think of doing that. It's so ludicrous. So if you'd want to charge God with being a little bit crazy, in a good way, I think, that's fine. But not genocide. Okay, the book of Revelation. Well, I have a question mark there because we just don't have time to get into that. And uh, I'm 
kind of hoping that you'll invite me down next year in February uh, to, to further these discussions, but, it's, uh, but I may get into it. Uh, I, I do have a whole chapter on Jesus as apocalyptic warrior, and uh, we, can, we can get into that. Uh, I, I can cover it in one word. It is one word. That's all it says. Martin Luther's hymn, one word will tell them. With a word, creation is brought in. With one word, the eschaton is brought in. Now, the, the picture in the book of Revelation is militaristic, and, but, but he's riding a horse, and generally, and there's only one weapon, and the weapon happens to be in the mouth of Jesus. Have you ever stuck some metal, a metal sword, a long metal sword in your mouth, while riding a horse. I don't know what Mary taught Jesus. We had difficulty teaching our kids. But I think, you know, and, and the, es the final eschatological battle that, that drifts right into the, the, the judgment scene, and the judgment scene is perfect judgment and justice because it is in an unfallen world. It is in a new heavens and new earth. That takes on a whole dimension of the fifth answer, the final answer, and that is the unfinished justice story. And, and while I do that, I'm, I'm, are just the two of you doing this? The others, come out from hiding back there. Uh, I, I'll just finish this, and then they can play. Uh, in theology, the... The eschaton, one of the answers to theodicy, God and evil in this world, is that God will turn the tables. That's God's heart. God will turn the tables and bring joy into your life, rejoicing, uh, dancing where there was sorrow. The, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, that The eternal weight of glory will be so profound when we're living in the next door to the right filled with the cosmic sugar cube come down, which is the concentrated presence of God. It is so profound, Paul talks about it as the eternal weight of glory. The eternal weight of glory is, is so majestic that Paul can look back at the litany of things he wrote in 2 Corinthians about his hardships and say this, that they were puff, they were momentary, light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. There's a new day coming, and God will turn the tables on any injustice, even if it's injustice within the biblical storyline. Thank you so much for listening to the Night Church Podcast. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon. And if you have, maybe you can share this with a friend. 
If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on social media at Praxis Ministry or come visit us in Loma Linda on a Friday evening. We'll see you in the next episode.